like, like a wood can't stand the sound of people like crumpling up around people's backs. White noise. It's like a little sound show. Sound show. The first time I heard this sound was around 1997, at the beginning of a VHS copy of Twister my parents bought. My dad cranked up the stereo and the windows shook. It was awesome, like way better than the movie itself. People call this the THX sound, but it's got a name, Deep Note. And it's been around for a lot longer than Twister. It goes back to George Lucas, Star Wars, and a desire for all movie theaters to sound uniformly great. Welcome to Sound Show. I'm John Lagomarsino. Today, we're listening to some sounds that define going to the movies. This one, Deep Note, is part computer program and part chance. It's a piece of music we've come to associate with big, fancy sound systems, but it's also a piece that challenges some common beliefs about what music is. And it was almost lost forever. Deep Note was created by this man, Dr. James A. Moorer. Well, James is the name that's on my driver's license. Uh, uh, I go by Andy. Andy's a really smart guy. I uh, count myself among the pioneers of, of digital audio. He was on the founding team at THX. He created one of the world's first digital audio workstations. It was called the Sonic System. And he's played a big role at Adobe, making parts of Audition and Premiere and other more experimental things. He's a programmer and a musician, so it makes sense that he's always been into the experimental electronic music scene. I don't know why, but I always find myself running about, you know, five to ten years ahead of uh, what's practical. The whole idea of Deep Note was to show off a new standardized audio system, THX. And that system was started because of one very bad theater. Back around 1983, just before the release of Return of the Jedi, some audio engineers at Lucasfilm went to check out the theater where the big premiere would take place. So they wanted to check out the sound system, make sure the, the sound was going to work all right. So in those days, there were three speakers behind the screen in a standard theater. The engineers went back there to check them out. There were indeed three speakers there, one of which, the one on the right, was standing up and working properly. The one in the middle had fallen down. Um, and the one on the left was disconnected and facing backwards. So they were completely horrified by this. And then when they did hook them up, they, they thought, gee, this doesn't sound anything like what it sounds like in our studio. So they decided that they were going to fix that by standardizing all this stuff. They needed a name for it. So they just uh, randomly picked THX, which was George Lucas's student movie, THX 1138. The idea was that the sound in a THX-certified theater would sound really close to the sound that the film's creators heard in their studios. And since Return of the Jedi was going to be a huge opening, George Lucas himself saw an opportunity to get a bunch of theaters in on it all at once. George, as he often does, used the opening of Return of the Jedi to force the big 70mm theaters into picking up the THX sound system. So they decided that they wanted a little, you know, logo for it that went before the movie. And the animator of that logo turned to Andy to make the sound for it. This is almost exactly the wor words he said. I want it to come out of nowhere and get really, really big. So I, I sat down and composed the piece and uh, wrote, wrote a program. It was generated algorithmically. It took about four days to get the program to sound like I wanted it to. So he gets the whole thing printed to film, 
He gathers some Lucasfilm execs in a room. The lights go down. They hear this sound. And, and you know, there was this big silence after I played the thing. It wasn't what they were expecting. They waffle for a while. They play it for some more people. They dub it off to a tape. And Andy goes back to his regular job. Two weeks later, they decide they like the sound after all, and they're going to use it. So they go to edit it into the copies going out to the theaters. And they lost the original. They lost it. Gone. And the problem is that it wasn't so easy to recreate. All that randomness in the piece stems from a single random number fed into the program. That's the seed of the whole piece. In this case, it was based on the date and time the program was run, and Andy didn't keep track of that. They, they said, okay, just we'll just re-record it. Just uh, bring it in and re-record it. Well, the thing is, the score was produced by a random number, right? So I went to for the, the, the big re-record, and they said, well, that's not the same. They said, where's that big bass note that goes shooting down at, to the to the cellar there? So I sit, sat there. You know, Every time you run the program, you get a different one. So I sat there running it over and over and over again until finally, after about 20 minutes, I got one that sounded about right. So that's the one that became the icon. But the original is still lost forever. But what's actually going on inside Deep Note? It sounds like almost nothing else I can think of. Andy made the sound by programming this big computer called the Lucasfilm Audio Signal Processor. It had 30 sound generators, or oscillators. So Deep Note is made of 30 generated tones, or voices. These 30 voices start the piece all scrunched up in a narrow two-octave range, where it's impossible to pick out any individual pitches. So, you know, when it, when it comes on, you're sort of, uh, whatever the audio equivalent of squinting is. Each of the 30 voices kind of drifts around slowly along random pitches in that two-octave range for around 20 seconds. Every oscillator, every second, it gets a new pitch and it just sort of wanders, wanders up and down. So here's what one of those voices might sound like, isolated. And here's a couple of them together. You can start to see how this could all add up into a gentle, teeming cluster of tones. Now, somewhere around 20 seconds in, each voice starts slowly drifting to its final note in the big chord. And that chord, it's huge. It spans five octaves, and it's made up almost entirely of these intervals called octaves and fifths. It's what we'd call an open chord, and it's big and bold and full of space. That's all octaves and fifths. So that, that trick I swiped from the opening of Beethoven's Ninth, which was all in octaves and fifths. So steal from the best. Now, Deep Note is probably not as famous as a Beethoven symphony, but it's become a staple in its own right. A quick YouTube search returns all kinds of parodies. The audience is now deaf. Andy has a favorite. It starts off, you hear a vacuum cleaner in the background, you see a picture of a, uh, of a harmonica. And slowly by slowly, the you know vacuum gets closer and closer. And when it grabs the harmonica, the harmonica makes a chord. <laughs> that one's my all-time favorite. A few years ago, though, these parodies couldn't really have existed. 
For almost 20 years after it was created, Andy wasn't allowed to talk about Deep Note at all. The original management at THX was pretty aggressive in going after people who used or copied the sound. The recording was copyrighted, and during that process, THX asked Andy to submit a written score of the piece in musical notation. Okay, so I got my India Ink pens and my uh, uh, protractors and my uh, compass and, you know, made a graphic score for it. It's curious that this score even exists. A work of music can be registered at the U.S. Copyright Office for two different purposes. So first, there's the musical composition, and that's the content of the piece, including lyrics, if there are any. Then there's the sound recording, which is, quote, the fixation of a series of musical, spoken, or other sounds. But according to the Copyright Office, both of these can be registered at the same time by submitting just a sound recording. So why go through all the trouble of transcribing this thing? I suspect the issue really comes down to what the U.S. Copyright Office thinks music is. Andy certainly seems to consider Deep Note to be music. After all, he borrowed ideas from Beethoven when he made it. Now, a performance of Deep Note relies on a computer program. But that program doesn't seem to be what the Copyright Office or THX's lawyers had in mind as representing a piece of music. They came to me and asked, asked me to write a score for it. And I said, well, the score is the program. He said, no, 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 you, you, like, a, you know, and treble clef and bass clef and that kind of thing. So it's conceivable that this manuscript is about proving that Deep Note is indeed music. By forcing it into musical notation, perhaps the lawyers thought they'd be better protected against claims that this computer program didn't count as music. It's kind of charmingly archaic. This big, weird piece of computer music was made to represent the future of sound, but its creator was forced to justify it to a narrow-minded government agency. Last year, Andy got to revisit the sound when THX asked him to remake it for modern surround sound systems. And this was an absolute delight, because instead of 30 voices, I got to use like 80 voices. I wasn't limited by the, the, the hardware that I built at Lucasfilm. He built a new sound engine and fed it a variation of the same program that drove the original. Did you keep track of which random number you were using for any take this time? Yes, yes, yes. I had it print out at the, the eight-digit number at the beginning of, of each run. <laughs> yeah, here we are. And it's this is in hex. It's uh, 53 ECC 300. <laughs> and so this is the so, this is the one that you consider like the canonical deep note now. Yeah, yeah. That's the that's the magnum opus. Special thank you to Batuan Boscourt, who reverse-engineered Deep Note and made those really great single oscillator examples in the middle. You can find more of his stuff at earslap.com. I want to talk about one more sound from the movies, one that really gets stuck in my head. Or under my skin. It's the sound of popcorn being chewed loudly, at point-blank range in the middle of a film. This is a nightmare. For some reason, the loudest, crunchiest, slimiest snack food is the one we've collectively chosen as the one to chomp down on while we try to concentrate on crucial dialogue at the movies. This is a controversial stance, of course. I was asked to leave the outline newsroom when I suggested a general ban on popcorn in theaters. 
Even my proposal for a designated popcornless seating area got a hearty laugh from my colleagues. Turns out I have some degree of what people call misophonia, a condition where certain sounds trigger negative emotions. The science is still out on whether this is a real thing or not. There's an active subreddit about it, with threads like, no sleep, four days and counting, sanity running low. So I feel like I'm a relatively mild sufferer. Popcorn is such a staple, though, it seems like my only recourse may just be to invent a quieter popcorn. So I called up an expert. Thank you for calling Jolly Time Popcorn. Someone will join you on the line shortly. Gary Smith speaking. Gary Smith is the president of the American Popcorn Company. And we make Jolly Time Popcorn. And I'm in Sioux City, Iowa. I wanted to give Gary a piece of my mind. How's <laughs> everything there? Great. Excellent. Cold. It was four degrees this morning. But, oh, my uh, gosh. But it's wintertime, so this is what <laughs> we expect. Yeah. I'm not very good at confrontation. But basically, I asked Gary to break down what makes popcorn crunchy in the first place. Most of the varieties you would buy in a movie theater are called butterfly kernels in that they have these long wings, so to speak, and, and as opposed to selling a retail bagged product that's, that's caramel-coated, you would use what we call a mushroom kernel, and that does eat a little chewier, probably doesn't crunch quite as hard as, as the butterfly varieties, which you get in a movie theater. A lot of that crunch can be blamed on the hard, shiny exterior of the popcorn kernel. And it's called a hull which is that outer shell. So I suspect a thinner-hulled uh, product uh, or hybrid would probably crunch a little quieter than the other types. So there is hope. A material way to get this snack down to a civilized decibel reading. We just need an extremely thin-hulled mushroom kernel to become the new standard movie popcorn. But Gary quickly dashed my dreams. It sounds like he won't be messing too much with the classic formula. It's just too popular. We consume way more popcorn than anybody else around the world, although it's known around the world. Something like 70% of Americans eat popcorn, which is a very, very high percentage. There may be some small gains to be had through crossbreeding and thinning the hull, but popcorn will probably be popular and loud forever. And so Gary Smith, fourth-generation popcorn expert, left me with his professional advice. So there might be small differences there, but uh, um, I think it, it would be good advice just to lean over and tell them to keep their mouth shut when they chew. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by me, John Lago Marcino. It was edited by Adrian Jeffries and Christine Worthman. Production help from Jordan Opplinger and Sam Thonis. Sound Show is a production of The Outline, a brand new, weird, beautiful website that you can check out right now at theoutline.com. If you want to hear more Sound Show, you can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.